This is a special four-part series on the military present, hosted by the Anthropological Airwaves podcast. Each episode of this series brings Anthropological Airwaves listeners an interview with a scholar researching the logics, histories, technologies, and wounds of militarized violence in the United States and abroad. My name is Vasiliki Tahuliotis. And I'm Emily Song. We are both ethnographic researchers whose research explores the military present, a term we use to describe how the present is shaped by the technologies, logics, histories, and economy of war. While the military present may vary depending on where one lives and what subject position one inhabits, it often entails the constant surveillance of certain bodies and practices, a state of constant preparedness for war, racialized threats, hierarchies of lives, affects of fear and terror, and toxic ecologies. This series is part of our own efforts to understand how the military present is being shaped and in some cases transformed by the rhetoric and policies of the administration of Donald Trump. What does this shift in political power mean for militarisms domestically and internationally, and especially in the context of the U.S. state's longstanding colonial and settler colonial projects? Let's take a brief glimpse at the past year, a truly terrifying and disorienting year that has brought the U.S., by some accounts, the closest it's been to nuclear war since the height of the Cold War. The United States and North Korea exchanged new warnings today, the North threatening again to attack Guam, and the U.S. warning of a response that would knock out the communist regime and destroy its people. North Korea best not make any more threats to the United States. They will be met with fire and fury. The military and security state have received tremendous boosts in their budgets as more bombs are being dropped and more troops deployed to the battlefields of the U.S.'s so-called War on Terror, now in its 16th year and increasingly framed as a humanitarian project. Well, in news on the U.S. war in Afghanistan, the U.S. Air Force is, is on track to triple the number of bombs uh, dropped there this year compared with last year. The major increase in bombing comes as the Trump administration has deployed thousands more U.S. troops to Afghanistan in recent months. The ongoing U.S. war in Afghanistan is the longest war in U.S. history. It was on one of these battlefields that the U.S. dropped the world's most powerful non-nuclear weapon this year. The bomb is called a GBU-43-B Massive Ordnance Air Blast, but it's also known as the mother of all bombs, and it has never been used in combat before. U.S. missile strikes against a Syrian Air Force base were celebrated in the media as an act of beauty and moral good. We see these beautiful pictures at night. I am tempted to quote the great Leonard Cohen. I'm guided by the beauty of our weapons. The sustained U.S. bombing campaign against ISIS in the Middle East brought about a surge in civilian deaths. Arms sales to Saudi Arabia increased despite the intensifying humanitarian catastrophe in Yemen caused by Saudi Arabia's bombing. Amidst all of this, the U.S. government's recognition of Jerusalem as the capital of Israel legitimizes Israel's occupation of Palestinian lands and reflects a flagrant disregard for international law. Militarism and aggression toward a variety of enemy others has not been limited to activities outside U.S. borders. This year has also seen a dramatic and exceedingly disturbing rise in rhetoric and policies that are actively hostile to anyone seen to challenge the imagined coherence of the nation, which itself is cast increasingly in the nativist terms of citizenship, whiteness, 
in the reproduction of Judeo-Christian values. This has been reflected strikingly in Trump's political speech concerning so-called immigration reform. We are going to end catch and release. Under my administration, anyone who illegally crosses the border will be detained until they are removed out of our country. And while discrimination against Muslims has been tacitly enabled in policy since the 9-11 attacks, recently there has been a troubling normalization of blatantly anti-Islamic sentiment coming from the highest offices of government. The president today avoided questions about the extremist videos he retweeted. The three videos were originally posted by a tiny anti-Islam ultra-nationalist party called Britain First a group known for hate-filled incitement. Beyond the realm of discourse, people and institutions that openly target vulnerable populations have been the beneficiaries of support from the Trump administration, as evidenced in the president's pardoning of former Arizona Sheriff Joe Arpaio. Arpaio has made a name for himself by forcing prisoners to live in canvas tents in triple-digit temperatures. I already have a concentration camp. It's called Tennessee. Bolstered by this permissive atmosphere, Agencies like Immigration Control and Enforcement, or ICE, have sharply intensified their tactics, causing an overall rise in deportations, upheaving lives, breaking up families, and creating a general atmosphere of terror for anyone whose claim to belonging can be called into question. Across the political spectrum, analyses of militarism in the Trump era have asserted that many of the policies and tactics that characterize this moment are without precedent whether expressing horror at the use of new weapons or military strategies, or confirming the administration's belief in the existence of new threats and new enemies, a discourse of the military present seems obsessed with the idea that there are indeed new dangers that make this moment uniquely precarious. While acknowledging the real fears and anxieties provoked by the political climate, we wonder if, too often, this concern with the present as a set of singular events obscures a longer American project of producing and targeting racialized enemies, both within the United States and abroad. We want to ask, how might anthropological inquiry help us understand the military present while critically engaging this powerful discourse that presents so much of what is transpiring as new? What genealogies of the military present might we draw on to help us simultaneously appreciate its historical continuities and ruptures? To help us press through these questions, we reached out to Joe Masco, professor of anthropology at the University of Chicago. His book, Theater of Operations, provides an important corrective to anyone trying to take an ahistoric approach to the military present and exposes the important political work that gets done by calling something new. We invited Joe to join us from Chicago and asked him to reflect on militarism in the Trump era. consequences of having a gigantic global infrastructure of militarism that doesn't have coherence from the top is a serious issue just in and of itself. And that's before we get to any of the explicit projects around the continuation of war on terror uh, policies or uh, Trump's kind of anti-immigrant stance and so on. So, so it's a very consequential moment that I think we're in right now, but it's not one that pulls on a deep 
strategic project. And that's very different than, say, even in the years of the early 2000s, right after 9-11, in which a quite belligerent, aggressive U.S. nationalist project was right at the start of the war on terror. But at that moment, there was a strategic vision around what was what was trying to be built. Mm-hmm. It was a very aggressive and very violent vision, but there was some coherence to its uh, its its sense of itself anyway. So we're at a very peculiar moment. We're dealing with a hugely consequential set of policies that are ongoing that have also been very naturalized in terms of American domestic discourse and have very, very little actual reporting around them now. So perhaps another thing we could talk about at some point of our conversation today is just how militarism becomes normalized and rendered a background frequency to an everyday life where people are thinking mostly about other things. And, you know, the incredible kind of cultural work that goes into making mass forms of violence and large-scale deployments of money and people and machines a uh, background concern. You can't see us, but we're both nodding very enthusiastically as you're speaking, <laughs> um, because this is really you know, the kind of conversation that we have been having amongst ourselves and exactly why we were excited to talk to you about this. Yeah, I'm actually, I'm really curious to ask or, uh, a little bit about your characterization about this of this current moment as incoherent. Um, I'm curious what you see this incoherence doing in terms of what kind of affect it's mobilizing. You know, one one way we could talk about it is to, you know, do a little bit of a genealogy on what happens with uh, American military thinking right after World War II. Uh, So there's a massive reorganization of U.S. institutions in 1947. And one of the crucial aspects of that is the Department of War becomes the Department of Defense. And in the shift from war to defense, we have a real um, effort to redefine what the role of uh, the military is. And actually, from that moment on, the U.S. doesn't actually really declare war formally. You know, you have to go back to World War II to get a kind of formal des- uh, declaration of war. But what you have from 47 on is a constant deployment of American resources around the world, both covert and overt, with the idea that the future becomes something that can be managed through militarism. And essentially, since that era, you know, mid 20th century, the U.S. has been involved in military activities in some capacity somewhere on the planet pretty much constantly. One of the strange aspects of about American militarism is that it only enters into public discourse in certain moments and under certain conditions. And there's an effort to make things that are actually very long-term commitments seem episodic. One way that gets managed is through a very conscious effort, which begins, you know, in a serious way in the early Cold War, to use affect and emotions as a way to mobilize citizen subjects in relationship to warfare. The big switch after 9-11 in 2001 was the reconfiguration of the entire uh, U.S. security apparatus around an image of of a terrorist that can't be deterred, that's not rational, that is not also state-based, but is uh, a more loose assembly of people and could be therefore really anywhere on the planet at any given time. And it's a massive increase, let's say, in the affective intensities of, of danger that are used to anchor 
citizen-state conversations around militarism, but also that craft a new orientation crucially to the future. My take really on the, the large trajectory of American militarism over the last 75 years is that it, it captures a bigger part of the budget, a bigger part of the imaginary, and relies on a certain kind of affective mobilization that has really profound consequences, not only in terms of what it does around the world, the war on terror has been a very violent affair indeed, but also what it forecloses in terms of other kinds of security projects that don't get funded, other kinds of domestic priorities that seem a lesser form of violence in comparison to the spectacularly imaginative world of counter-terror, and that also makes the future a increasingly negative affair that one approaches not with some creativity and enthusiasm for what might get built, but more in a, in a mode of constant endangerment and escalating concerns for the wide range of things that just might happen. One of the things that I, I think I hear you saying is that, you know, if we're, we're thinking about the Trump era, that there is something that is distinctly different in terms of an escalation, but that this escalation was kind of enabled by a pre-existing affective formation and security apparatus that enabled this escalation to, to happen in the particular way that it is now. Yeah. And I think if, if we go back to what Trump has promised around militarism, he basically promises that wars should be winnable. Like, you know, he suggests that, you know, as part of the fantasy of like a return to a a pure moment of kind of white supremacist and masculinist ascension and uh, where also the U.S. could have always a set of enemy formations that allow him to blame certain figures for existing conditions. So the figure of the immigrant is, you know, a key weapon in his uh, affective mobilization. And so he is making a move that has happened at other moments in American history where he's trying to identify a kind of person that could be blamed for kind of stealing prosperity from the rest of the country. And he does it in a very crude and a very direct way. So, you know, part of part of why I think also his particular project is is unsustainable is because it doesn't actually match an existing world in any way. It's a it's a real invitation to both fantasize about a, a version of American life that never existed in the first place, but it also relies on not actually understanding existing conditions, either domestically or internationally. So it seems like like part of what you're saying is that there is something that is distinctly new about Trump's kind of strategic deployment of American militarism and ideas of nationalism within that, um, but that it also, there's a, a longer genealogy, there's a longer kind of continuum that has put a lot of things in place in order to allow this to happen. It's sometimes useful to go back to the early 2000s and remember exactly what the initial framing policies of the war on terror and indeed, you know, the George W. Bush administration in its first term, what it did, because I think it's um, Trump is kind of a strange echo of that earlier moment. The George W. Bush administration also was involved in, um, you know, massive threat amplification 
the production of a particular kind of enemy that the U.S. could uh, declare war on. And if we look at the way in which the original authorization of force was written in September of 2001, the Congress has one sentence in it, which says that the president is authorized to prevent any future acts of terror as the president designates them or sees them. And so what that authorization does is it gives the president the ability to decide what a terroristic danger is before it actually occurs. Mm -hmm. It's a, it's a, very extraordinary new kind of power. And so the logics of preemption that emerged in the early days of the, the Bush administration was basically a decision to act before a crime or an act of violence or an act of terrorism occurs to try to prevent those things from happening. So one of the reasons why the current configuration of the war on terror that Trump inherits is, is so scary, actually, is because he actually has extraordinary powers to decide which imaginary dangers from all the ones that you could dream up about things that might happen are the ones that require an immediate federal response. The perverse thing about preemption as it works in these particular worlds is it tends to focus everyone's energy on a certain set of scenarios and a certain set of outcomes and can even make those things become true in the effort to prevent them from materializing. Joe, it's really interesting in your response to our questions about this particular moment of uh, militarism and nationalism and imperialism in the U.S., um, you keep hearkening back to the early 2000s and to the Bush administration and the beginning of the so-called war on terror. And I'd be curious to hear your thoughts about um, how you see the role of the Obama administration and its particular brand of militarism. You know, I think the 2008 election in for many people was um, an election about warfare. And there was an expectation that uh, Obama, as he came into office, would be kind of the anti-Bush on mm -hmm. war on yeah. terror. But if you listen carefully to what he said in the campaign, he always said that he actually had a place for war in his, uh, in his program. And what he essentially tried to do was rationalize and bring into some form of legality many of the most extreme aspects of what the Bush administration had done. So there was, you know, a formal effort to try to close Guantanamo. There was an effort to get rid of the torture program. There was an effort to think about um, diplomacy as a uh, more serious uh, aspect of American power around the world. But there was also a deep structural commitment to drone warfare and a commitment to killing as a way to um, execute American policy around the world. And I think, you know, part of the long term kind of historical assessment of the Obama administration will be trying to reconcile the differences between um, some of the principles that he advocated both in the campaign and in his his speeches and then the specific actions that um, his administration supported. But I think, you know, we are now in a world that is very uh, confusing and upside down precisely because there don't seem to be any true limits on uh, presidential power, on covert action. And so many of the, the kind of worst activities of the counter-terrorist state 
are now open-ended questions about whether whether those activities could be pursued again or whether they're even happening now in covert, just more covert terms. Yeah, I was going to say that it, it seems that one of the other things that the Obama administration did is that it, it introduced new techniques of invisibility. And it seems that we're also living the legacy of those particular techniques right now. Yeah, I think that's that's really an astute judgment. And, you know, one way you can um, kind of identify some places where that happens is in the new language of militarism itself. So there's really not a discussion, even in a casual sense, of war anymore. Um, the formal term that's used in the Defense Department is an overseas contingency operation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So pretty much all the deployments of U.S. troops around the world now comes under this category that was once a little side note in Defense Department planning for things like humanitarian interventions. Right. And that now has been stretched to include, you know, pretty much any scale of intervention or violence that the U.S. has uh, performed since 2001 can now be uh, just marked as an overseas contingency. So... In, in a theater of operations, you make a compelling argument that national security is a kind of collective experience uh, and that it unites military domains making war with the civilian populace that is ostensibly being defended. I'm thinking specifically of recent events in which the idea of security is used in the service of, of one part of the populace protecting itself against another. Um, so here I'm thinking about incidents of racialized police violence, for example, when officers are let off the hook for shooting un- unarmed citizens on the basis of, of feeling threatened, or current immigration proposals that conflate religious belief or country of origin as legitimate evidence of a potential threat. Um, so I'm curious what your thoughts are about the concept of affective mobilizations and how it works to predict and preemptively neutralize threats both to the state and to particular identities within the state. Yeah, thank you. Well, I think, you know, one simple way to put it is that any logic that is deployed externally to the domestic order under a logic of militarism comes home in one fashion or another. So we've we've got now a series of different forms of domestic violence that are operating in a very similar way to the mobilization of American power as well under logics of preemption and anticipatory defense. And I think that's just a very scary thing. And I think we'll continue to see more deployments by, um, you know, different components of American society that under the pressures, particularly under uh, the Trump rhetoric, which is very much about dividing across race and class and citizenship and immigrant lines, this kind of logic can be deployed by kind of any member of the populace. But of course, the way in which it gets rationalized in terms of courts and in terms of uh, official power often mirrors the longstanding traditions of white supremacist uh, governance in which you know, certain modes of violence, certain modes of authority simply aren't challenged in, in the same way or are uh, de facto uh, supported by, uh, by given institutions. So, so I do think this is a prime example of how militarism, despite all of the formal efforts to imagine it as something that is now only happening outside the United States, um, comes home and changes modalities of everyday life. And I think about like the military now is like activating a de facto social contract all the time, whether it's been one that's been uh, officially 
agreed to through things like elections and, and policy, or whether there's a kind of de facto and implicit support for it by simply allowing policies, procedures, actions, certain kinds of violence to go forward without contest. And, uh, you know, I think that's that's the one of the central grounds for the political right now is fighting precisely around how is it that official power, whether it's in the form of police or military or intelligence agencies, um, can properly be used. And I think there's a there's a huge cause for not having that conversation. This has been a fascinating conversation, and we just thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. This is exactly the kind of conversation we were hoping to have, so we really, really appreciate it. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in to this episode of the Military Present podcast, hosted by Anthropological Airwaves. In our next episode, scholar Madiha Tahir takes us to the federally administered tribal areas in Pakistan, where the U.S. has been carrying out drone strikes. Madiha will shift our analytic gaze away from the body of the drone and toward the body on the ground that is surveilled and targeted by the drone. It's an exciting conversation that we aim to build on in future episodes. We hope you'll tune in again.